So I invite you in this moment to notice your next breath. And if it's helpful and beneficial to ground yourself in your body, feel your hands. What do your hands feel like right now? But ground your awareness in something tangible, kinesthetic. And in calling in your awareness in this present moment, this idea, we call into our physical form, our awareness, our energy. As we breathe in, noticing the mind, let it settle. As it settles, greater clarity, awareness, presence, blessing this perfect moment. Noticing your lungs, knowing how much air to take in and release beautifully, automatically, without thought. But I invite you now with the next breath, wherever you are in that, take your time. But imagine in your, eyes, your mind's eye bringing that breath down into your heart and breathing into the heart. Feel your heart actually opening and breathing. And once you've settled in that with the clarity of thought, the continued clarity of awareness, nothing to fix right now, nothing to be aware of, but just be here now. And if you wander, if you find your mind busy, bring it down into your hands again. What do your hands feel like? And the heart is expanding and opening with each breath. And then also activating that divine intuition, which is your gut, your core. About two inches below your navel point is the second chakra, which is the seat of intuition. And so as we come together today and you find yourself wandering or futurizing or pasteurizing, to bring yourself back into the present moment, perhaps with the awareness of the breath, feeling your hands to help bring that energy back, the awareness back to this physical form, knowing that the heart intelligence and the intuitive intelligence, the three points of awareness and intelligence within the physical form are in concert, all of the meridians of the body, beautifully aligned. And so in this, I know that as we've moved in and shift our energy and ground ourselves in our being, it's much easier and more available when I speak these words, that there was one life, that life is God, that life is my life, that life is perfect. It is my life right now. And so I give thanks beforehand for the most spectacular and wonderful Sunday celebration that I've ever experienced because I am alive and grounded, aware, awake, receptive, understanding that everything you and I could possibly require for the further development of the greater yet to be within our being is readily available. There is no lack or limitation. There is no agreement with struggle that will limit the truth of our being. And so to stand together rigorously and beautifully and wonderfully welcoming the greater yet to be, I know that this day is fully resourced, fully supplied. I celebrate the music I celebrate the words, I celebrate the fellowship, I celebrate the impact that these, these words and these teachings have had upon my life to give birth to that divine presence and expression of life in a, in a greater, more loving and generous way. For the divine nature of the infinite is my nature and that is one of generosity of spirit. As we look around and watch the wonder of life upon this beautiful landscape that we live in come back to life. So life is always there, even when it's cold and white, and it comes alive. And so it is a miracle. We celebrate all the miracles this day, all the wonders and awes, not just in the nature around us, but the nature within us as well. 
And for this, I give thanks. I release these words in gratitude and appreciation for all these words expressed. And yet, the far greater expression of life that these words support as well and welcome. For this, I give thanks and invite you to say with me, and so it is. Beautiful, beautiful. Isn't it lovely to come and hear somebody that's just a phenomenally gifted artist come and share their music with us? I mean, it is, it's just remarkable, the, the, the wealth of talent. So you notice there's some changes happening with our music, and part of what we're, we're, we're growing and recreating in a way is to have various artists such as Martin, uh, standalone sort of uh, groups or individuals that can carry a Sunday with us, and Martin certainly does that beautifully. So I want to let you know that it's a work in progress, but I, I'm, I'm very much involved with what's happening, and I'm, I'm very excited to be part of that as well. It's a, just the, the, the opportunity for creativity is, is just such a blessing. And, um, and I love that, and I'm very grateful for it. So talking about building peace, poise, clarity, true power. Because I think all of us, want, you know, the, 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 in fact, there's, you can do it. It's going on downtown right now, which is great. We have a number of people there. I wore my John of God tri- triangle. Uh, Wayne Dyer, someone sent me a, a picture they took down there of Wayne Dyer getting ready to present. He has his John of God triangle on, and that's the symbol for John of God and Abhijani. And it's amazing, mystical, powerful experience. And he had some wonderful uh, experiences down there, as, as did a number of us that uh, have traveled there. I've been there three times in the last two years. And I really uh, appreciate that rich environment of the sacred and the, the, the mysterious. So this, this idea was inspired primarily by some words by Dr. Ernest Holmes, who was our founder. And Dr. Holmes wrote in uh, a section in our textbook, The Science of Mind. And when he wrote the textbook, The Science of Mind, that was cutting edge. It was back in 1926. And so science was coming into the awareness of consciousness on the planet, and science was the cutting edge. And so he was captured in that consciousness because I think we're far more than the science of mind. We're the science of the heart. We're the science of being. And so I think Dr. Holmes would, would, I've heard it said that he was quoted one time when someone went up to him and said in the 1950s, oh, I've read your book. I love your book. He said, oh, that thing is outdated already. Because he understood the nature, and there's such beautiful uh, words there, and, we, and we, we treasure it, but also his, which suggests that he understood the ongoing nature of consciousness and awareness and the evolution, the greater yet to be. So that we are in constant, if we're involved with actively and consciously in the creative process, it's a much more interesting experience. But he said this, one cannot be a good student of the science of mind who is filled with fear and confusion. I don't care who you are, you can't, you can't live in your life full of fear and confusion. We must keep ourselves in a state of equilibrium, or as the Buddhists would say, equanimity, in a state of poise, peace, and confidence. Poise, peace, and confidence. In a state of spiritual understanding. And so what is the spiritual understanding? And it's a beautiful, beautiful opportunity. I mean, all that has come before and all that supports us now, it really is all for us. So in, in, in Mel Robbins' book, saying, Stop Saying You're Fine, which I love because it's so easy to fall into the trap of saying, how you doing? I'm fine. I'm fine. Which you know what fine means. Sort of white knuckling your way through life. You know, it's like, how many times have you gone to a restaurant, had a, had a fine meal and gone back? How was the meal there? How's the food there? Fine. You're probably not going back. So, so she talks in this chapter of routine about some of the, some of the traps where we get stuck. And it's, it's beautiful stuff. She talks about overwhelm. Choices, uncertainty, and locked into routine. And, and choices, beginning there, we live in a society where we, we can pretty much have anything we'd like. 
If we have the resources and the time and the availability, we can pursue it, we can go after it, we can, you know, we have so many wonderful, wonderful choices. She's talking about here about uh, her experience of going in when she was a little girl, you'd go in and there were two choices for potato chips. She actually says three. There was, she said there's plain, there's ripple, and there's barbecue. Now when you go into the potato chip aisle, by the way, my wife does not let me go into the center of the, uh, the, the, uh, the grocery store. We walk around the perimeter where everything's alive, you know, that'll keep you alive. And everything in the middle, as she says, it'll kill you. I said, okay. So the potato chips are out in the middle there. Have you ever noticed that? Everything that'll keep you alive is all around the outside. And then the, the cookie aisle, she came down the cookie aisle one time and she was just shaking her head. She came out and said, everything down there will kill you. <laughs> I said, okay, honey, we won't be going down the cookie aisle. But anyway, this idea of potato chips. And now there's 40 kinds of potato chips. So we have choices in everything. Uh, in fact, she talks about this. Um, she uses an example of a farmer's market where someone set up 29 samples of different jams. And what they found studying it was that people would come and taste the jams at 29 different varieties. And they would sell 3%. That, that particular kiosk would sell 3% of their product because people became overwhelmed. And so there was a kiosk down the way from them that only had six samples. They sold 40% of their product. Some people would say, I'll take all six. But you're not going to take all 29. So it just speaks volumes to too many choices. When I had my cabinet shop years ago, I figured out really early, I would make up samples of, I'd be doing somebody's kitchen, and they'd want red oak. That red oak was really hot at that time. And so we'd, I would do red oak with light, with no stain and a clear finish and a high gloss finish and a satin finish and then I'd move down through. So by the time I was done with all the samples, I'd have 25 samples and I'd take them over and I'd show them to the people. And it would just put them in a complete panic and confusion. We would spend a month picking out a color on the finish. And I gotta tell you, it wasn't efficient for anybody. So I realized early in the game, I'm gonna take four samples over there. And I would take things that were so extreme, so I would sort of orchestrate what I kind of knew they wanted. They'd show me a picture, I'd like this, and I realized I'm just confusing them. And I learned less, less options I could help move them along. Um, and, and so what it was for me when I read this in this chapter was an example of how too many choices overwhelm us. It can become overload which he talks about unhappiness and confusion. It just puts us into this place where we don't want to choose anything. Because, and then we go into regret because you'll regret making any decision. What if I, make, what if I choose this or choose that? Look at the options. You know, the buyer's regret. You, buy the, you, know, you, you go buy the vehicle and then you realize, oh, I should have got that one. Or, you know, you buy the house and oh, we should have moved to that neighborhood and all. You know, it's just, there's just too many options. So to be aware of that, because what we want to do is to, we want to align with the powerful you. There's the, the resistant you and there's the powerful you. And so she, in this powerful you, she talks about this young girl, Tanya. And Tanya graduated from university with a degree in dance. And she was kind of, didn't know what to do. She was done with school, and, and up to that point in her life, everything was sort of laid out for her. She went to high school, then she went to university, and then she did some work around the dance, and then she moved home. And her father owned a restaurant, and she was working at the restaurant. And so people would come in and go, Tanya, what are you doing here? I thought you'd be in New York City dancing. But she didn't know which direction to go. Should she further her education, formal education as a dancer? Should she go sleep on her friend Sarah's couch in New York City and go to auditions? She just didn't know. And so she became paralyzed with all the choices available to her. And so what Mel Robbins recommends when we're in this position to activate the powerful you is to pick something. 
Just pick something. Because it's probably not going to be the end destination. It's probably not going to be the ideal solution. But pick something. Which sends a message to our higher wisdom self and to all of the, the physiology and the neurotransmitters in our brains. Oh, we're moving in a direction. There's an aliveness involved with picking something. Because she says there's no right choice or wrong choice. But we get into this whole trap of, is this the right choice for me? Is this right for me? Just go somewhere and do something. Get moving. She, there's actually a study around this. It's called Emerging Adulthood. It's a new study. It's a brand new field. Human beings, you and I, require... There's a couple of angels here, by the way, but I won't point them out to you this morning. But most of us are just human beings, and some are just angels in form. So human beings require this phase of self-growth and exploration for our brains to fully mature. And that is to make a choice. We need to make a choice to explore for our brains to fully mature and to continue to grow new cells. I mean, all the plasticity of the brain and how it can be rebuilt now. It's fascinating. Joe Namath, I just saw Joe Namath. He was the quarterback for the New York Jets years ago. And he has some uh, diminished capacity with his brain. And he, he doesn't recall having a concussion, but you have a lot of professional athletes that have, have had severe brain injuries. You see it with hockey players. You see it with uh, football players. You see it almost in every sport. And so, you know, up until now, it's pretty, pretty much, well, if you have a brain injury or you've had a concussion, your capacity's been diminished. And so Joe Namath realized, I want to do something different. I want to help my fellow athletes. And they have found that he's using this process called hyperbaric chamber. So they go into the chamber, and what it does is it provides um, an, uh, an expanded uh, amount of oxygen. And what oxygen does, that oxygen helps rebuild the tissue in the brain. And so they're able to measure it now in an MRI in the ways that they measure these things. And Joe Namath said within his own life, he can see the, the brain cells being regenerated. So it's just wonderful to know. I mean, here it is. It looks like sort of a situation where there's been this injury and it's, it's, it's never going to get better when all of a sudden we're realizing through technology and awareness. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of modalities. Someone else came up to me after the first session was sharing some of the, the work he does around this uh, diminished brain capacity. But it's, that's, that's exciting that our brains were not stuck in any of this, that the healing is possible in so many ways. It's just a, it's a, just a, it's a wonderful world we live in that someone would do, do these studies and provide us with that information. She moves into uncertainty. Uncertainty is another way that we stay stuck. It keeps us from trying new things, moving faster, or even moving at all. Once again, she's like, I, should I make a choice? Should I not make a choice? So as she says, what will happen if you take the risk? What will happen if you start the business? What will happen if you move to the new city to pursue a career? What will happen if you actually, you know, you'd like to have a partner in your life and you actually go out on a date with someone that asks you to go out with them? You know? Because she said the other part of it is what happens if you don't risk? What happens if you don't move in a certain direction? That's an even greater cost. Because we may think that the job we have right now is going to last forever. You know, we may think that, the, the, that what we know right now, this is it. And in fact, life's change. I just love Martin's song, we're, the drop, we're only the drop in the sea. And yet we're a precious drop. An amazing drop of, of opportunity and possibility of, of choosing. I mean, choosing is such a powerful, powerful practice. Because we don't get to choose everything that comes into our lives. You know, the economy and the things that happen and the weather. I brought Megan, my daughter Megan, I'll introduce you to her later. I said, come on up to Edmonton, it's finally warmed up. And then yesterday we spent all day covering all the plants with plastic. I said, well, <laughs> most of the time it's warmed up. But I still wanted to wear my casual Sunday Hawaiian shirt. 
I, as I pointed out, it's not a Hawaiian shirt. It's a Jamaican shirt, by the way. So, Aire, there you go. Anyway, I was wearing it either way. It's May long weekend. So nice to not have to wear four layers one weekend as I stand here. But what happens if we don't take the risk? We step out. We don't go to the audition. We don't apply for the job. Nothing. Nothing. And so we apply for the job and we find out we're miserable. And then we get locked into a paycheck or whatever. I mean, it's just, it's these self-imposed prisons. Like last week, I told the story of the guy that made the, you know, he couldn't take the salami sandwich anymore at lunch, and he finally jumped off the building and killed himself, and they brought his wife down. And what happened? Well, he got so tired of these salami sandwiches, he said he couldn't live anymore. And she says, yeah, but he, he made his own lunch every day. <laughs> I mean, we're making our own lunch, and then we're miserable. Oh, they gave me a job. God bless them. I'll never be able to find another one. <sighs> I finally made it here. You know, I used to always say to people, because I, I, you know, my work for so long was I'd go sell some carpentry work. And I used to tell people when I didn't have work coming up, I'd say, well, I was looking for a job when I found that one. You're always hat in hand or acting. Oh, my gosh. Try that. You want to talk about something temporary. Oh, yeah. Aren't you guys going to sign me up to a 20-year contract now and for millions of dollars a year? Didn't you love that? How I showed up as the cop and said, up against the wall, everybody hold it? No. So... She points out positive change. You choose to take on uncertainty of life on your own terms. So what you do when you make a choice, when we choose, when we take responsibility and make a choice, we face the uncertainty of life on our own terms. I realize that this is going to be uncomfortable, but I'm willing to take the risk. Because she said what happens with routine is our energy goes into keeping life comfortable. That if I'm uncomfortable, I must not be on the right track, when in fact, the only way to live life is to get used to being uncomfortable. Because further growth and further expansion is the nature of the infinite. And if we want to grow in alignment with this co-creation, then we have to understand, oh, this is it. There's never, there's never a place to stand that's going to feel t- completely comfortable. There's actually a little walnut-sized zone in our brains called the basal ganglia. And they now know that in the basal ganglia, this is where routines become addictions. It's a little walnut-sized thing. It's where routines become addictions. And so she uses the example of smokers, and I just want to let you know, smokers, that I love you. This has nothing to do, this isn't personal, this is all business. I'm just using it as an example because smoking is a popular hobby with people, but it becomes addictive after a while. And and I know because I've been a smoker. And so what happens is you're used to having a meal and you go have a cigarette. Or someone says, hey, it's break time. And I I watch it in classes. There's three or four people at break time, they go out and have a cigarette. I get it. Because it's a pattern, and we become addicted to it. They say that nicotine is as addictive, addictive as heroin. I'm going to take their word for it. I've never done heroin, but I have done cigarettes, and so I just, I, I, you know, I don't need to prove it to myself. But the point being is that little basal ganglia is the spot in us that turns those routines into addictions. This zone, and this zone, this little walnut, recognizes it's no longer a conscious thought when we become addicted to a behavior it's no longer a conscious thought. What it does is triggered by the environment. So we're in an environment where we typically have a cigarette, that place where you go smoke. You don't even have to think about it anymore. You're just there, you pull out the cigarette, you light it up, and you're good to go. This routine, which has become an addiction. So understanding that, because we have a tri- our triggers, and what most, many reputable scientists are now realizing, addiction is outside our conscious control. 
And what it takes to move through it is it requires breaking that pattern. It requires vigilance, awareness, a commitment to push through it. We have to fight ourselves. You just simply have to step up and say, I, I'm not doing this anymore. You know, I remember uh, years ago, I worked on the Winds of War with Robert Mitchum, and there was a guy that ran the, the generator, Clyde King. And Clyde told me, he said that, and Clyde and I would go smoke. I was there for days, and with Robert Mitchum was starring in it, and I was the sonar guy. And they shaved my head down to nothing, and then they had to put a, a watch cap on me, so it didn't matter if I had hair or not. I said, why do you guys cut my hair off and then put this cap on me? I think that the, the makeup people should talk to the wardrobe people. So anyway, that's, I, I digress. But anyway, Clyde had this foolproof method of stop smoking. And he recommended you take an entire roll of duct tape and you tape up a pack of cigarettes. And then you carry it with you. And so when you had the urge to smoke, then you would unwrap the cigarettes. But by the time you got done, close to unwrapping this whole roll of duct tape on the cigarettes, you, weren't, you didn't want a cigarette anymore. I said, Clyde, I don't know if that's going to work because then you've got to carry this football under your arm everywhere you go, this wrapped cigarette. But it was his effort to break the pattern and to slow himself down. Because the key to it, as she says here, and we've heard it over and over again, it's in the small things, the small things. There's a picture of a, of a, of a, uh, a man named Harold. This is not Harold's picture, but I found it on the Internet. I thought it probably looks like Harold. Harold is, okay, so if you meet Harold... And, and you tell me you saw his picture at the Center for Spiritual Living Edmonton. It's not his picture, but it represents Harold. He's 57 years old, called into Mel Robbins' um, radio show and said he had been addicted to heroin, cocaine, and, and marijuana for 39 years. That started at 18. Actually, no, he started at 9 years old. And what happened was he had a promising career in basketball, he dropped out of college, and then all of a sudden he found, he had his addiction, but he found that he could work as an electrician for Amtrak, you know, the train, the train system in the United States. And finally, it got so bad, he couldn't work anymore. So he ended up, the train tracks that he worked on, he ended up sleeping under for years while he practiced his addiction. And so she said, well, we need to get you into rehab and, and clean you up. And he said, no, no, I've been sober for nine years. I'm just calling to let you know my story. And she said, well, what's been going on? And he said, well, he realized how much work it was taking to stay on drugs. It's a lot of work to stay addicted. It becomes your main occupation. You know, you've got to find the next drug, and you've got you to work the system and, and, and all these things to stay addicted. It's a lot of work. He said whenever, he, he was a hustler. He said whatever he needed for those 39 years, money, drugs, sex, he could always hustle and he could get it. Until one day he woke up in the bed of some junkie he had met the night before after doing heroin together in her apartment. He slept most of the day and woke up in the late afternoon sweaty and disoriented. He'd been in this situation hundreds of times, but on this day he did something small and it changed his life. He just had to do one small thing to change his life. He admitted that he was tired of how much effort he was putting into staying on drugs. And for the first time he saw just how much work it was to stay homeless, addicted, and ruined. Because those are choices too. And then he thought, what would happen if I took all of this effort and I, this hustle and I just put it to good? And so what, what little good thing can you do to support the higher yet to be, the greater yet to be for yourself? See, we don't have to, isn't that comforting to know we don't have to fix it all today? But we can find one practice that we can change or shift that can make a huge difference. So he's in the small things, each one, each small thing that we do to shift the pattern or break the routine or break the addiction. Because it's not just drugs and alcohol. It's ways of thinking. It's ways of being. 
or hanging on to resentments or whatever it may be. Each one is a, is a point of leverage. Each one is a point of leverage. And each one builds momentum. Every time we do it, all of a sudden we're shifting and changing. And as what, what Harold came to was a moment of clarity when he realized, you know what, I'm putting all this energy into something. I'm putting all this energy into maintaining what is killing me. And I'm going to stop that. And so he, she goes on in the book, it's a beautiful story, about what he did and, and, and to, to break himself free of that. To get unstuck is to see opportunities and to seize them. This is my opportunity to do something differently. When you go out the front door today, even if you're parked over there, go to the right and go down the steps. Those are the kind of patterns. It'll be a little farther for you to walk. But what it does is it starts to set a new message to the brain. It's really simple stuff. Break routine creates the butterfly effect. Everything changes. Everything changes. If you want to be an agent of change upon this planet and to give birth to the greater yet to be, if you truly believe that you have gifts and talents that are untapped, that are going to go on a scrap, the universal scrap heap and never be seen if you don't access them, this is a beautiful thing to know. This is good information. How do I do this? Take your routines apart. How do you drive to work every day? Go around the block a different way. He says, brushing your teeth with the opposite hand is powerful. Next week, we're all bringing our toothbrushes, and we're going to try that out, okay? Dress with your eyes closed. Someone came up to me after service and said, I want you to know that I know that you, with that shirt on, dressed with your eyes closed this morning. <laughs> I thought that was great. I love this slide. The way we do small things determines the way we do everything. That's so profound. You know? I mean, I just watch it and, and to slow it down and to observe life, to look at the, the miracle of life. You know, I look out my front window and, and I live across from a beautiful park. And three weeks ago, there was nothing green. And now everything is full. I can't see past the green. And it's like, oh my God, it's just amazing. You know, because it's so easy to go, ah, it's just the leaves popping up. You know, and the magpies are flying around and going through the trash if you don't cover it and doing their thing. But it's just beautiful to watch life and it's a miracle. It's a miracle that we are here in this physical body, in this form, all of the components it takes for us to take birth, take form and be on this planet and to have volition and to take dominion over our lives, taking responsibility and making new choices. I mean, it's a beautiful thing. It's awesome. But how many people spin into that staying stock and resentment and bitterness because something they made a choice that didn't work out? Oh my gosh, get your bucket list out and say, oh yeah, I'm not going to be a circus performer. On to the next thing. <laughs> Years ago, I worked with a woman that was, she was looking for the right and perfect mate. And so we'd pray every Sunday. This was in the Fillmore Church and I was a practitioner student. And she'd come in every week and say, I want, I want prayer support for the right and perfect mate. And she had this whole system down. She'd go out with somebody, and if it didn't work, she knew right away, she'd just check them off the list, and she'd go, next. Next. I love that, next. Adam Bryant wrote uh, a wonderful book called The Corner Office. There's Adam's picture up there. And writing this book, he's a, he's a writer for the New York Times. And in writing this book, he interviewed 700 CEOs, successful CEOs of companies. And I know that maybe you don't want to be a CEO, and that's okay, because it, it applies to life and it applies to choices. And he found the number one component, the most important thing for 700 successful CEOs was passionate curiosity. Passionate curiosity. They became, they're lifelong learners. 
Like learning doesn't stop when we get out of high school or grade grammar school or, or college or university or we get, our, we get our higher education degree. It doesn't stop there. You know, people always ask me, how many books do you read? And I said, I read every book I can get my hands on that I'm called to because I love it. I don't do it because I have to. I love it. It's like, oh my gosh, look at this. Look what I'm learning here. And my, I got to tell you, my grade school teachers would be laughing right now because they couldn't get me to crack a book. You should have seen the fight I put up in grade five to learn the multiplication tables. And if you're around me, like Laura always says, you're always counting. We go in somewhere, I'm multiplying all the time. Oh, let's see, that's 30 feet by 47 feet. Let me do the math on that. We don't need that information, but I'm just curious, how many square feet are we sitting in right now? You know. <laughs> Wasn't that way in grade five. Nope, you're not teaching me no multiplication tables. I got 10 figures and 10 toes, and that's all I need to count to. Passionate curiosity, lifelong learners. You know, uh, Abraham Maslow, who, who identified the hierarchy of needs, and I think a lot of us have heard of that, you know, the, the need for survival, the need for food, the need for procre- procreation, and all the way up the chain. But towards the end of his life, he used to talk about the, the peak experience. And he identified this peak experience where people have this moment of divinity or grace, and all of a sudden they're lifted up. And towards the end of his life, he started talking more and more about the plateau experience. It was not some spike in awareness, some spike in, in an activity in, his, in life, but the plateau experience, which is just is it being at a plane of awareness of life that is fairly consistent. And they called it the plateau experience, where we're open and permeable to look out in the world every day and say, I'm going to find something that is awe-inspiring, that's a miracle. Because we know what, what consciousness does and how it works, and this law of attraction that's so popular that when we stand there in search of and, I, and looking for evidence to support the miracle of life, this evidence of something beyond the, the ordinary, we identify with that energetic, and it's a very powerful spiritual practice. We, bring, we begin to bring more and more of it into our lives because life is absolutely for us. But if we don't open the door to that, if we don't say yes to that, we stay stuck, in the, we stay stuck as Mel Robbins talks about in this amazing book. This is a quote by... Uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson, that I, I, I want to share with you as we conclude today. It says, the, in, the invariable mark of wisdom, if you're interested in wisdom, is to see the miraculous in the commonplace. Where can we see the miraculous right now? In the commonplace. I mean, isn't it amazing that I can speak in this little thing on my cheek here and it amplifies sound? I mean, go figure. Can you imagine if we all got together and, and they all said, okay, you guys are all going to figure out how to amplify sound. You know, I, maybe we get there. But it's just, it's fascinating to me, all of the, the wisdom and the clarity and people moving in a certain direction to, do, to, to, to discover that. He, he continues, and anything that counters the tendency to take life for granted is an active ingredient in both wisdom and wonder. So anytime we stop taking life for granted, we move into wisdom and wonder. We move into the mystery he says, as, as is an appreciative life in general and the life you have in particular. And there's something that you've been successful with today. And man, bless you, bless you. You know, even getting up and getting dressed with the lights on. Look at all of you. You look all put together. It's amazing. <laughs> and your willingness to be mystified. To live in the mystery, it's like, oh, wow, I don't understand, I don't know, but I'm grounded in the oneness of my being, and what I do need to know will be made clear to me right now. 
Work with this powerful intelligence. Invite it in to inform you at that intuitive level. There's something that's for us, and I agree with that. So what is for me today? I demand it be revealed right here and right now. And then get step back, stand in peace, poise, clarity, and bring it on. And you do not need to pin down every butterfly. He continues with this quote. But, you know, you don't have to, everything, oh, let's, let's put this, and this is this butterfly, and we'll pin it down. And, you know, it just, and that's an activity for many people. We could just let the butterfly go, fly away. Love it and appreciate it for what it does. So what, what is your kingdom? Talked about the kingdoms of consciousness a few year, uh, weeks ago. What is your kingdom? Victim consciousness, everything is done to me. Life is miserable. I got to fight my way through it. Everybody is, everybody is trying to get the little bit that I have. Uh, we've all been there. We can go there at times. Or then we move into courage. We have to push down the fear to take responsibility. This is part of the journey, pushing down the fear to take responsibility to make something out of our lives and to follow that. That intuition starts to wake up. Second kingdom, intuition starts to trigger. A lot of times what people confuse for intuition is just that, that busy mind. And they'll say to me, I don't know if it's my busy mind or it's intuition. I'll say, I don't know either. Try it out. Third kingdom, we move into grace and peace. Oneness, understanding that my life is God's life. My life is spirit's life. There's a deeper abiding knowing. We activate the heart intelligence, the gut intelligence, and the mind is influenced. The, the strongest centers of intelligence that we, we have in our bodies are actually our heart and our gut. And so it's interesting, isn't it, that we, we allow our minds, our brains, to inform us so much and influence so much? When, it, when it's very limiting, it's one-third of possibility. And then we move into oneness. We move into oneness, as David Hawkins would say, we're pretty much useless to this, this world, this, this domain, so many of us don't live there. But we have moments, we have moments of brilliance, we have moments of great love, compassion, and joy, great moments of celebration that we can take back into the third kingdom and we can t- when we find ourselves being victimized in our own thinking, we can pull ourselves out more quickly. Doesn't mean we don't go there. So, I didn't do this at the first service, but I told them I would, I want to complete Ernest Holmes' quote here. I promised to do that, and I, I failed my promise to them. So don't tell him, Martin, he's over there laughing, because he remembers. Dr. Holmes said, one can be a good student of the science of mind who is filled with, one cannot be a good student of the science of mind who is filled with fear and confusion. We must keep ourselves in a state of equilibrium, in a state of poise, peace, and confidence, in a state of spiritual understanding. By spiritual understanding, it has not meant anything strange or unnatural, but merely that the belief in goodness must be greater than any apparent manifestation of its opposite. That's simple. Look for the goodness wherever you are. It is this science of faith we are seeking to uncover, a definite technique that will conduct our minds through a process of thought, if necessary, to that place which the sublime minds of all ages have reached by direct intuition. And so developing our intuitive capacity will guide us there. But we get there through, through peace and poise and clarity. It's not through more effort. So let's just know this together. I, I just give thanks once again. I recognize on behalf of each person here and especially for myself, this one power and this one presence, this one life. And I claim it as my own on behalf of each one here. And so if this does not work for you, let it wash over you. This is an invitation. This is not a demand. The infinite never demands, but always invites. 
And so in this invitation of recognition, I know that I, my, my awareness and my capacity to, to see the awe and wonder upon this planet, to see the artistry, the creativity, the possibility, the greater yet to be for myself and others, I stand in that energetic. I stand in that tribe. I know that something amazing is happening right here and right now. I direct every cell of my body to work in harmony and in a symphony of the expression of beautiful life in every way, shape, and form. I I direct my mind to stand in the peace and the clarity that allows me the opportunity and availability of the next great good idea. I look everywhere around me and I see awe and wonder. I change my patterns, sending that deep message to myself that I'm ready for a, a new way of thinking and a new way of being that puts down and dissolves any limitations, any agreement with struggle. For this I give thanks. And together we say, and so it is.